0: I invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Philippians, about halfway through the New Testament. I appreciate Eric filling in with extremely short notice last Sunday for me when I was under the weather. I heard you did a great job. Everybody appreciated that. But I'm glad it wasn't me getting a telephone call at 715 saying, oh, by the way, you need to preach today. Uh, so I appreciate that. Uh, I'm not going to do a series on Philippians. This is a one time standalone introduction to the book because a number of us here are doing a scripture memory program that I hope you might consider doing. It's not too late called Partnering to Remember. And uh, you can go online to Partnering to Remember. You can download the pages that print out Philippians, and they fit in a little moleskin like this. Uh, and you can carry them around and hopefully memorize the book. If you started last week um, and go, it's about six verses a week, you'll memorize the entire book by Easter, and it's called Partnering to Remember. I think the website's on the uh, on the back of the bulletin. But this was to be an introduction to Philippians a week later. Somebody came up to me afterwards and said, Are you going to preach what you were supposed to preach last week? I said, Yeah. They said, This really better be good. You've had plenty of time to work on it. So... Um, I wish, I wish that that were true, but uh, we will just I just want to give you an introduction to, to the book, and I hope that you will follow along with partnering to remember. Regardless of your age or stage, my wife's doing better on it than I am. Our daughter reads it once and she's got it memorized. I've got to go through it about a thousand times to try to have these verses uh, uh, stick with me. Next, uh, next Sunday is the Sanctity of Human Life uh, Sunday. We try to give special attention to human life issues. Um, and we'll have a report from Covenant Care Services. Our oldest daughter, Julie, and her husband, who just adopted twins two weeks ago, will be here uh, not to speak, but they will be here at that, and you can meet those little ones if you'd like to do so. Um, if I seem confused and dazed, I am. I, don't, I mean, my wife's in Alabama. I had to get my, our disabled son, Stephen, ready for church today, which is, and if you think I'm in any frame of mind to preach I think I am, and that's a miracle. That in and of itself is a miracle. So let me read from God's Word, and uh, let's look at the first six verses of Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So ends the reading of God's word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we have sung some... um, Tremendous truth today about your character, that you are consuming fire, that you are holy, uh, that you sustain us. And now as we come to this, your word, we pray that you might, by your mercy and grace, allow us to have a glimpse of eternity when we are surrounded in our lives with the things we hear and see that all stress the here and now. They stress that which is temporary with not even uh, tipping our hat toward the eternal. So we pray now in these moments together in your word that you'd feed us spiritual food. You've told us we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Our souls are hungry, so we ask for nourishment. We pray you'd give us perspectives on what counts for eternity and what's really important. We pray you'd open our eyes to the truth and not allow us to be deceived. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians is one of the most read portions of the Bible, perhaps because it's brief. It's just four brief chapters, perhaps also because the theme is one of joy. It's a very positive book. It's not written toward, to deal with certain problems like some of the other books of the Bible. Uh, it's Christ-centered. It focuses on who Jesus is and his relationship to us. And uh, so a lot of people read it. And here, Paul, who planted the church at Timothy, and let me—I mean, at Philippi. He and Timothy are together, and he's writing to them these words. Let me tell you how the church started. If you want to read this sometime on your own, it's in the Book of Acts, chapter sixteen. But Paul, who was a missionary around the Mediterranean, he went to this city of Philippi. Uh, Philippi was named after the. Uh, the uncle slash grandfather of Alexander the Great, Philip. It was a Roman city-state, so even though they were far from Rome, they, they dressed with Roman garb, they lived life on a day-to-day basis with the privileges of being Roman citizens. And uh, Paul and two of his co-workers, Timothy and Silas, uh, had gone to Philippi, and the, the church there, the movement of God, started in an unlikely place. It started at a prayer meeting. There was a group of women who, on a Sabbath day, joined together to pray near a river right outside of Philippi. Well, Paul and Timothy and Silas went with them, joined them in this time of prayer, that built some relationships, and a woman, a woman named Lydia, who was a business person. She was a seller of dyes. She comes to faith in Christ. She believes the gospel. She invites them to come to her house, and her house, Lydia's house, physical house— becomes their base of ministry in Philippi. Well, during that time, while they are there, there's a a young girl who is demon-possessed, and this demon empowers her to be able to be a fortune teller and accurately to tell the future. Well, she is harassing Paul and Timothy and, and Silas, and Paul rebukes her. The demon comes out of her, which was good news for the girl, but it was bad news for her master who made a lot of money off of her. And so he is angry, and he has Paul and Silas thrown in jail because now his source of income is dried up, or at least that source of it. They are in jail, and we read in Acts, the book of Acts, that around midnight they are praying and singing hymns of praise to God. God sends an earthquake to release them from prison. Uh, Although the doors now are open, they do not go out, but the jailer, the Philippian jailer thinks they've left, and he's on the verge of committing suicide, knowing that he would be put to death uh, later by the authorities if it was found that they'd escaped on his watch. They tell him not to do himself no harm. He comes to believe in Jesus as his Messiah and as his Redeemer, as does his whole household. So that was the beginning. It's a real exciting, a tumultuous beginning to the church in Philippi. Now it's ten years later. And Paul is in prison in Rome, and he's writing back to them. Uh, And a number of them, obviously, would have been people he knew personally. He had led them to faith in Christ. And so he writes back, and he identifies himself and Timothy, who is with him, as servants or slaves of Christ. You see that there in the opening verse. Now, in that time in history and in that place in the Roman Empire, you could become a slave uh, out of one of three reasons. One is, if you were in a land that was conquered, you would be enslaved. Let me say, well, that was pretty bad. Well, it was better than being put to death. And so we know in first century times, the majority of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. Something like at least 60% of the population were not free. They were slaves. So the first way you could become a slave would be if you, uh, if you were conquered. The second way you became a slave is if you were born into a family of slaves. If you were born to slaves, you were a slave. The third way is that if you owed a debt, if you owed a debt to a person, and you could not pay that with, with, with gold or silver that you had, then you could enslave yourself to that person, say, I will serve you for X number of years, kind of like an indentured servant. Or even more commonly, your, ch- your children. Or your daughter or your son would go and become a servant to this person until the debt was paid off. Well, now, why did Paul and and Timothy call themselves servants or slaves of Christ? Because the reality, we all serve someone. All of us serve sin. How? We've been conquered by it. We are born into it, and we've been sold into it because we owe it a debt. And God says the punishment for sin, the wages of sin, is death. And so Christ came. Christ came to suffer the penalty and the punishment we deserve. And the Bible tells us that he took our condemnation. And now, no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. So now, having been forgiven, we submit ourselves to him. And we choose out of gratitude to serve this one who has set me free. So in that sense, I was released from the slavery I was born into. And now through faith in Christ, I'm free from that. But now I choose. Now I choose to be his slave with joy and gratitude. That's the sense that Paul identifies himself in Timothy when he says they're servants of Christ. Now you serve someone this morning. Every person, everyone here, everyone on the planet, you have a master. You may think you're free. But you either serve sin and the wages of sin, or you serve Christ. Who do you serve this morning? Well, as Paul writes now, he, he expresses gratitude. He says he has reason for being joyful. And I just want to look briefly at, at a few things of which he is thankful, for which he's thankful. And in verses 3 and 4, we see that he was thankful for their fellowship. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Whenever Paul mentions things that are joyful, things that are positive, things he remembers, he breaks forth in praise to God. That's a very good practice to have. And he was not afraid to express his need and his appreciation for other people in his life. He never functioned as a loner. When I talk with peers of mine, with, with friends, with men in the church, some of you here, and when we talk about the things of God, it's common for me to ask, how are you doing in your walk of Christ? Uh, are you, how would you describe it? Are you growing? Are you going forward? Are you going back? Are you stagnant? And if, if a man tells me, well, I'm, I really feel pretty stagnant right now, or maybe even rebellious toward God, I can tell you right now that what I'm going to ask. It, it is a rote, memorized question. My first question will be, do you have any supportive fellowship in your life? Uh, I'm not saying, are you a member of a Bible study? Do you go to church regularly? Do you go to meetings? I said, do you have supportive fellowship in your life? Are there other believers, maybe just one or two, who is there to to spur you on to love and good deeds? Do you have that in your life? And if you do, you should be grateful. God intends us to have that in our lives. We need that. Paul needed that. And so he expressed his gratitude toward those who did that for him. And so you need supportive fellowship, but also you need to provide supportive fellowship for others. So today... Ask yourself, does anybody know the Lord any better because of your fellowship with them? Is anybody walking with Christ stronger today because of your fellowship with them? It's it's very important to recall those things and to express our gratitude uh, to one another. I got an email about a month ago from a person I've had no contact with in about 23 years. I know because he was a student at the University of Arkansas when I was a campus minister there before we moved here. His name is Denton Mitchell. Denton came to faith in Christ while he was a student there while I was a campus minister. I remember, I can see it right now as I'm speaking to you, I remember sitting across from him at a table in the student center there on the university campus. And we were talking, he, he thought he had become a Christian, but he wasn't sure. We were talking about the basics of faith in Christ. And I said, Denton, do you believe this? Yes, I do. Have you put your faith in Christ? Are you depending on this to make you right with God? Yes, I have. And he was telling me these changes that were happening in his life. And I said, I remember looking him in the face and saying, Denton, I can't read hearts, but it certainly sounds to me like you've become a Christian. And tears just came down this big, strong, muscular guy's face. He sends me this email from Dallas. He lives there with his family, had pictures of his teenage boys. And he said, Chip, I don't know if you remember me or not, but I listened to your sermons on iTunes. <laughs> well, that was a surprise. And he said, I want to tell you how much I'm grateful for what you and Barbara did back then when you, and he went down and listed a number of things I don't remember I don't remember events places things that he recalled and uh, he said I I just won't tell you how much I appreciate you we didn't never he was a very quiet shy person listen that email I'm good for another year (laughs) right there you know when you get a little you don't need a lot of encouragement but just some that's supportive fellowship and so he was offering supportive fellowship And what we should do when we get it is not only be thankful for it, but then give thanks to God. That's what Paul was saying. I thank God in my remembrance of you. So he would take those things, he'd draw his appreciation about them, and he used it as fuel for his prayers. So are you offering supportive fellowship to others? He's also thankful for something else. In verse 5, he says he's thankful for their partnership in the gospel because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now now they had experienced grace they had come to faith in christ and therefore they were participants is another word that's used participants in the gospel there's a world of difference between being a spectator and being a participant we've kind of become a nation of spectators haven't we? i mean you know just all right i don't cook but i'll watch cooking i'm watching i don't hunt but i'll watch hunting i don't fish you know i mean we can just watch and the scary thing is when we watch and spectate, we may delude ourselves to think I've actually done that. I was leery of my teenagers seeing Saving Private Ryan back when it came out, for th- there were n- a number of reasons, but one, I am fearful that when we see a movie that depicts something like Normandy, that when it's over, you may say, "Okay, I've been there, done that." as though you had anything to do with it or you think you have an idea of what it was really like when you don't. I don't care how many movies you saw about it. That's a spectator. We're tremendous spectators. We watch what others do. Yesterday, I went to a website that I hope you'll go to called Asia Link. Asia Link, L-I-N-K. Asia Link is a Christian ministry that recruits and sends for missionaries to the unreached peoples of the world, primarily in Central Asia. They have a very, very powerful six-minute video that I really, is worth your time to watch, called Lost. It's talking about the number of lost people in the world. Out of the 6.6 billion people in the world, over a billion, not only have not heard the gospel, they have no access to it. No Bible, no missionaries, no churches, No opportunity to hear. Over a billion people, and most of them are in Central Asia. Well, I watched this about four times, and they take the narration of some things that John Piper has said and written, and they put it with backdrops of statistics and shots video of people groups from around the world, from Nepal to China to uh, a variety of places. And I keep up with the world Christian movement. I read more than most of my friends that I'm aware of. I read Mission Frontiers. I keep up with statistics from Operation World. I know far more about geography now than I ever did in school because I'm reading frequently of the progress of the gospel throughout the world. But what hit me hard as I was thinking about this passage and I was watching that video is Chip. You're a spectator. I can know all those facts. I can know the need. I can watch. I can be aware. I can even feel bad about it and compassionate about it. And yet, there's a far cry between being a spectator of these things and being a participant. Now, we've got to get this clear because it has eternal implications. I want to give you a quiz right now, and you answer out loud, spectator or participant. For example, here's a student, and this young girl wants to learn a language, another language besides the one she speaks, so she decides she wants to begin to speak French. She looks in the newspaper and online and finds that there's a number of classes around middle Georgia that offer basic elementary French classes. She gets a map of French, puts it up in her bedroom on the wall and begins to learn about that. She begins to watch French movies, but she's never spoken a word of French spectator or participant, spectator. Here's a person who wants to learn to swim. He didn't have the opportunity as a child, so now here he is, he's 24 years old, and he says, I want to learn to swim. I feel nervous around the water, and this is limiting a lot of the things I can do. So he he joins a local club that's got a swimming pool where he can go. He watches people swim. He reads about famous swimmers in history and those that are in the world games now but he never gets in the water spectator or participant spectator here's a man not feeling well now this is not biographical that could have been true last weekend but here's somebody and he goes to a doctor and he says you know i just i just kind of slowing down i can't i just don't feel well it's like this all the time the doctor does physical says you know here's what you need to do you're just letting yourself go you need to lose a few pounds you need to exercise regularly you don't exercise why don't you start walking maybe 30 minutes a day and and uh, pay more attention to what you're eating, make sure you're eating uh, healthy food. So uh, this this guy goes back, and like other things he does, he digs in, he starts to learn how much exercise, aerobic effect a person needs, and you need to do it so many days a week, so much time, get your heart rate up here. Then he says, you know, I need to, I found this. Lo and behold, the secret of losing weight is is eating less than you burn up. <laughs> Never knew that. Okay, so he learns all about that. He learns about nutrition and learns to read labels on food and and fat and carbohydrate and he becomes a real pain in the neck for his co-workers because he begins to rebuke people at work for what they're bringing there for lunch, but he knows how to read these, but he doesn't change anything. Spectator or participant? Spectator. Now here's a person who grows up in church. They're taken to Sunday school when they're young. They have even taught the books of the Bible. They can Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus they know, know the little songs that go with it and so forth they, they hear and read about and, and that Jesus was the son of God that these miracles that he did and he said these things and that they come to church, they come come to worship and, and they, they really think that yeah, I have no reason to think Jesus wasn't the son of God, that's what I've always been taught and yeah, I guess there is a heaven, I guess there is a hell I've got a Bible, it's a big one, it's a big King James Bible I mean leather, gold dame on the front of it I got in the 6th grade, large print but it makes no real difference in the person's life. They deal with life and their values and their way they treat people is just the same as if Christ was not risen from the dead. Spectator or participant. Spectator. Now, what had happened in Philippi is they not, were only, not had been spectators, they had become participants. And so he says, I'm thankful for your partnership in the gospel. I don't see him here, but there's a man in our church that about three months ago told me of a friend of his that goes around different churches in Macon and rates them, you know, kind of like, what do you call the person that goes in restaurants, the mystery eater, <laughs> mystery shopper, you know, and they go in. Well, this person goes, and he may be here today, and I don't care. I'm not going to say exactly what I plan to say. And he rates, He rate, uh, the guy in here, but the guy that told me this here, okay. So I'm going to look over here because he's on the other side of the- Anyway, you can correct me later if I exaggerate. But this this fella, at least on occasion, goes in and he makes a little chart. How's the music? How's the friendliness? How's the sermon? How is it? You know, and then he rates it, and then he reveals. You know, kind of like a movie. Well, when our buddy over there told me about this, it burned it burned me up. I mean, now here's why. Not because I got a low rating. Maybe I did. I don't remember. What burned me up is, how can you evaluate worship as a spectator? That was the problem of the Pharisees. The woman at the well says to Jesus, your people say we should worship there. My people say we should worship where? Where do you think we should worship? And what does Christ say to her? It's not where you worship. It's that you worship in spirit and in truth. Now, yes, we do worship, regulated by the scriptures, and we don't just go off on all sorts of wild inventions, but we do what god's told us to do pray submit to his word and so forth but whether we worship well is not based on what's outside it's based on what happens here and so two people seated right here today could walk out of this service after it's over one might have worshiped well and one might not have worshiped well one might have been a partner participant one might have been a spectator so the notion of evaluating worship from an outside spectator standpoint to me is it starts from a flawed assumption. You getting all this? Alright. So that's our problem but I think this person's friend is just bold enough to do what many of us just do in our own heads but we don't write it down or tell other people about it. We watch and then we have the delusion that we have participated when we have it. So how do we move from Spectator to participant. It's simple. To be a participant in the gospel is you understand the gospel, you understand your problem of sin, you understand who Jesus is, that he came to be your redeemer, that he came to be your substitute. You understand that. And then you believe it, say, that's really true. And then you embrace it, saying, that's for me. He died for me. It was my sin that sent him to the cross. It wasn't just sin generically that all of us have problems in life. It was my disobedience to God. And then finally, you participate. That's what moves you from being a spectator to being a participant, to understand, to believe, to embrace, and to participate. John Calvin said this. I'm going to read it to you, and then I want to explain it, and then I want to read it again. The gospel is nothing to us in respect to possessing it until we have received it by faith. Now there are many benefits that people all over the world gain from the gospel being true. The fact that Christ came again has great implications. People are served in hospitals and they receive food and wars have been stopped or prevented. There's lots of great implications because Christianity is true and how people are affected. So don't misunderstand what Calvin was saying. Calvin was saying that if the gospel is true, and you may know it, you may understand it, but until you receive it personally, you don't benefit from it at all. Now let me read his quote again. The gospel is nothing to us in respect to possessing it until we have received it by faith. It would be like, there's the gospel, like a meal at a table. And I said, oh, it looks good. It's presented nice. The china and the way they decorated the table and the color schemes. you got green and the various colors of the foods. But you don't ever eat it. To participate is to sit down and eat the food, not just watch it. The Philippians had become participants. Boy, I'm sure talking loud from being sick a week ago or like that. Okay, last last point. He's also thankful for their perseverance. He's thankful for their perseverance. It says in verse 6, He's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you start projects and never finish them? I mean, some of you probably are great finishers. Others of us... About the time I get it going, I lose interest, I'm on to something else. And so it's easy to be surrounded by half-finished projects, the half-read novel, the partially painted room, (laughs) the unwritten letter. But God's not like that. God never starts anything that he does not complete. He always finishes what he starts. Has God begun something in your life? Has God begun a work in you? Then you do not need to fear whether you will fall away next week or whether he will abandon you next month. And this is called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Here's how the Geneva Study Bible describes the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It says, The reason that believers persevere in faith and obedience is not from the strength of their own commitment but that Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit preserves them. So we could probably have a better title for the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Does that mean that every person who claims to be a Christian will be saved? No, we know there's false assurance. We're told of that in the Bible. Does that mean that if I have my ticket punched and I think I have the guarantee life insurance policy against hell, that therefore I can live like the devil? No, of course not. We may fall into sin. But the Holy Spirit inside of us will move us again to repentance and restore us to righteousness. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that once God begins a work, he will persevere. And so our perseverance, the fact that I know I will be walking with Christ five years from now if I'm alive, is not based on the fact that look how disciplined I am. I'm a guy that, boy, when I give my word, I stick to it. It has nothing to do with that. It's the faithfulness of God to continue the work which he began. That's the perseverance of the saints. That's why Paul could say, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will finish it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He begins the work, he finishes it. One of the largest and most difficult engineering projects in history was the building of the Panama Canal. Do you know that the idea, there were serious plans laid for the Panama Canal going back to the 1500s? And it was the French that made the first big attempt in 1880. They went there and for 21 years, they tried to build the Panama Canal. You know how many people died in that process? Over 21,000. 21,000. How many of us would keep up a project that was that costly of human life? Malaria, yellow fever, landslides, extremely dangerous. They abandoned the work in 1901. The US picked it back up in 1904. 10 years later, of which there were 5,700 deaths of, of Americans, of the US that, that worked there, 10 years later in 1914, that 48-mile canal was finished. and still in use today. Far more use now than it ever was in the past. Think of all the things that prevent us from completing things. People can let us down. We can run out of money. We can lose our health. We can lose our interest. Circumstances change. A hundred different factors can cause us not to complete something. God always, God always finishes what he starts. Has he begun a work in you today? Maybe today for the first time you're thinking the message of Christ makes sense. That's the first step. and Participate in it. Embrace it. And I promise you, if you're afraid that, well, I, I don't want to follow Christ because I don't want to be like one of these persons who says that and then a month later they just they abandon it all. Don't even think like that. Rest assured that the same God who sent his son to be our redeemer, to be our substitute, is the same one who has the power to follow through with that work, to continue that good work which he begins within you. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your being a finisher and that we can depend on you and we can have faith in you. And we are grateful for Christ, our our Savior. We're grateful also for your Spirit who is molding us into his image. If anyone is here today and they, at this point, have not yet come to understand the message of Christ, may today you open their eyes and give them faith, even like you did with Lydia, to open their hearts to believe and that you might use us in the brief time that we have to reach others with the gospel, especially that one billion plus who right now have no access to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to uh, close the service with a a song that some of you know, most of you don't though, that really puts into words a lot of what...